0: Hi, this is Justin Ruffmarsh, author of The Machine, and you're listening to The Sass Holes. Welcome to Sass
1: Holes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. Jamie, Jason, and Pete have a combined 100 years of making mistakes, just like this intro, and are more than happy to share them with you. Please rate us at 5 Stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Today, we are joined with very special guest, Justin Roth Marsh, author of The Machine and founder of Holistics. Before we get to Justin, we have an ad. Carney. This episode is brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Get a doodle of your noodle, which is a brain map, and find out why you're having anxiety and panic attacks. Just mention this ad, and you'll get 50% off. Visit neuronoodle.com. mention Jamie Carney, and get... 5% off. Joke of the day.
2: Arnie. Yes, Pete. I believe I gave Arnie. you the joke of the day and it's bad. Yes, Pete. Arnie. <laughs> yes. All right. Back with the joke of
1: the day. I was going to talk about the uh, Suez Canal, but that ship has sailed. Leave <laughs> us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net.
3: Shout outs. I look, Shout last, outs. Week it was, last week, the Suez Canal was a news item. This week, it's a joke. yeah fantastic. You know, God, the, the news cycle moving even faster now. Well, that's what happens
1: you get Carney feeding you know, jokes. Topical. He's topical. How many How many different people take credit for my jokes? You got Justin Jackson. You got Carney. Who was the other person that came? Oh, Patrick of We're not allowed to talk about either of those. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Shout outs. Jennifer. Just, <laughs> just, Jennifer Higgins, knowledge manager at Peapod Digital Labs. That's a new gig for her. I used to use Peapod. Uh, let's see. Okay. Him Fall. Kimberly Ferris Fall, VP sales at Salesforce. She was just named the new caucus president of Lake Forest. She'll be happy to know she was mentioned on this episode. And then we have Nancy Gray Starkelbaum. Nancy Gray Starkelbaum. VP of Customer Success at Phenom People. We'd love to have you on, Nancy. Come on anytime. All right. News.
3: I, I any got anything? a shout out. I got a shout out. Oh, whoa, oh, so oh, hey, Somebody out. dead. No. He died. Not at all. Not this week. Two, I got I got my wife, Jennifer Ferrara, who- love Jennifer. New job as an account manager at MuleSoft. MuleSoft. Oh. Yeah. Oh,
2: wow.
0: Yeah, big, big time,
3: big time. Um, and then uh, two, I want to, because Pete, you keep is calling that, me the that, marketing. Is that,
0: that that bus, the bus company that Salesforce bought? Is that MuleSoft? Uh, yeah, company, Enterprise yeah. Bus?
3: Yeah, APIs, yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. Yep,
0: yeah. exactly.
3: Um, and then the For other her. one, because Pete, you keep calling me the marketing guru, I want to a, give a shout out to John Ellett, who, who wrote an amazing book called The CMO Manifesto, uh, if you're interested in marketing um, and you want to figure out how the CMO thinks, uh, read the CMO Manifesto. Those are my I think two. We,
1: I think we need him on the show.
3: Yeah, can do. For, I'll work it. Uh,
1: Carney, you got anything over there? You've been swamped. I know it's tax season.
2: Matt Lorenaus, give him a shout out. He's hey. up, uh, He just got promoted um, to chief. I think chief experience officer at Blue Crew. So oh. he's one of the hardest working guys I know. A little bit too intense. But he's still a good guy. And then uh, Sarah Capulli just got promoted uh, over at Relativity. If you don't know what Relativity is, uh a no. good thing. What they do is... I have a theory, they, though. They look at uh, all chats <laughs> made for lawsuits. <laughs> it was one of their primary uh, products. So any type of communication you do, uh, they will look at it for uh, either lawsuit protection or to sue someone.
1: Outstanding, outstanding corporate Matt, Matt Lorenus my favorite planet. Love that dude, glad he's uh planted on his feet. Any other news of notes, gentlemen? Because I know people are on the edge of their seats.
2: No, that's it. Crickets, okay. Insert, it. Crickets. It. insert crickets, it. insert crickets yep. there. Okay. What well, Germany just went into its third lockdown, yeah. So did France. France. I was listening to some of Justin's uh uh podcasts that he or videos that he was on where they talked about COVID and stuff like that, but a delay in. And pipeline creation and stuff like that over the last year, I feel like COVID is still hitting a lot of companies that might feel like they survived. Um, We're talking
1: about this, and this is my first day post two weeks after my second Pfizer shot. I'm clean, man. I am clean. But I still have to go wear a mask or I freak everybody out. I'm going to a football game tonight. I got to wear a mask. It's, we got a lot of that going on. All right.
0: I, I think show. I think I think we need to start desensitizing the general population.
2: Yes. Oh, I, I, start
0: taking those masks off. I think. Yes, I agree. Justin,
2: I'm on your side. Let's yeah, do it. gra-
0: gradually. It's a public public service. Take you know. It's like if you're scared of spiders, they'll they'll have you hold a little one to begin with.
1: Well, a lot of people are going to be surprised when I take my mask off. This is uh, <laughs> now, Justin. Maybe. That's a horrible
2: analogy because no matter how many spiders I handle, I, I am still scared to death of them.
1: <laughs> All right. On that note, we have Justin Roth Marsh, author of the Machine and founder of Ballistics, on the show. Oh my goodness! Thank uh, this. This is a big show, Justin. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Oh man, how could we not have you? I don't know how many books I've bought of yours. I don't know how many times we brought you in once or twice. I can't remember. I think it was maybe it was when, how long has Ballistics been around? 25 years. 25 years, right? From day one. Okay. I got a hold of your book, read it, digested it. I don't know how many times I read it, dissected it, brought you in to help teach sales process engineering. What is sales process engineering, Justin? I think that's what the basis of the book is, right? Sales process engineering?
0: Yeah. So the essence of sales process engineering is very simple. It's the idea that it makes sense to apply division of labor to the sales function in a principled way. Um, And the reason why I add that um, bit about principles is that the sales environment is unique for two reasons. Um, First, you don't have division of labor but then everyone claims you do. Um, yeah. So what you actually have in the sales environment is, is no division of labor in a principled way, but what you have is a bunch of folks with different business cards. But the interesting thing is when you scratch underneath the surface, you realize that there are no clear demarcation lines, which of course is the hallmark of division of labor. So uh, to, to for example, if you talk to someone in customer service and you ask them, well, what are you responsible for? They'll say, well, I'm responsible for you know performing – The transactions that are associated with revenue, but then they're they're only responsible in a limited sense because if something goes wrong or if the customer wants a discount or if ultimately the salesperson is responsible. And the same thing applies with marketing. Marketing folks will say, well, among other things, we're responsible for generating leads for salespeople. But ultimately, salespeople think of themselves as responsible for generating their own leads. And they'll look at the bundle that marketing gives you and they'll flick through them skeptically and then go back to Navigator and generate their own. So you have this thin veneer of specialization, but in even the more modern sales environments, you don't have division of labor in a principled sense. And that's what we're arguing for.
2: Well, is that due primarily to the fact of a lack of trust too? Like I think, uh, in certain situations where, uh, leads are handed over to a rep a rep just doesn't believe in half of them because they've had a couple bad experiences with a little bit yeah so there's a
0: chicken and egg problem the, yeah. the, the, is the problem with the rep because they don't trust marketing or is uh is the problem with marketing because they've never been forced to align themselves correctly with the rep's requirements i mean on the side of marketing most marketing departments we come across today have accepted an impossible mandate. You, you know, the, the, It's impossible for them to generate sales opportunities at the rate at which salespeople consume them if they buy into the inbound dogma. It's simply impossible. So they they've been dealt a fairly ugly hand. So in that situation, sales doesn't want marketing to have absolute responsibility for the generation of sales opportunities, but marketing doesn't want to have absolute responsibility for the generation of them either.
2: Let's figure finger pointing both ways then, is what that creates. Yeah.
0: So the the problem is that nobody has started from first principles and applied themselves to properly engineering or re-engineering the sales function. I mean, Pete,
3: I think uh, that makes tremendous sense to me. And you and I had that issue when we worked together, right? And the way that we solved that, well, I don't, I don't know if we if we solved it, but the way that we we coexisted and were successful is because. We spend a lot of time together. What do you right. need? What do you want? What do I need? What do I want? And I mean, we've talked about this a number of times on uh, the Sassholes. It's there's an interlock between sales, marketing, and and marketing, client success, and you know those groups that say like we have to have these shared understandings. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what we're doing. You know, we can pump out all the content and we can drive all the pipeline, but unless we're connected on it, it doesn't matter. And I think. That's where teams get really successful. And that's the example, I think, Peter, if you and I just arguing isn't necessarily a bad word, we just argued about what we were there to do, you know, we finally got a shared. Understanding. I,
0: I, yeah, I think the, the broader point is that th- what we're talking about is a design problem, an organizational mm-hmm. design problem. So James asked who's responsible? Well, I would say yeah. it's not sales, it's not marketing, it's whoever's responsible for the design of the organization, which presumably mm-hmm. is the senior executive Now you can compensate for an organizational design problem by going to enormous effort to have, you know, folks get in a room and talk to each other, but you shouldn't have to. It makes more sense to design the organization. So it's functional by default rather than designing the organization. So it's dysfunctional and then expecting uh, individual contributors and, and middle management to, to attempt the impossible on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. But Justin, you should just be able to hire good people and they'll figure it out.
0: Well you can the problem is that doesn't scale.
1: <laughs> well well it does but just under under 12 if you have a company under 12.
0: Yeah exactly uh, you can but you can build big great businesses as long as they have uh, fewer than 12 employees. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now getting back to why marketing sucks. I think the way the way I took it be, uh, back when Jason and I worked together let's just say a sales rep costs 100 grand if you could spend 100 grand on marketing and you could have business come in that would far outweigh the hundred grand, then you wouldn't need a salesperson. It's which is more effective. There's got to be some points where marketing doesn't make sense and it makes sense to bring on a sales rep. It's, it's figuring out what those numbers are. The biggest take that I got from Justin's book one of them was specialization of labor. Take the people that you have and whatever they're best at, make sure they're doing the most that they can as long as they're supposed to be there. So, like the, whoever, quote unquote, the best sales rep is, you know, if they're going to work 40 hours a week, well, I want them spending 40 hours influencing, you know, business. And that's kind of where we got into the uh, discussion of BDRs, business development reps, you know, sh- uh, should they create the interest and then pass it over right away over to the, no. to the reps that have the skill? I know that's where J- Justin and I got, got into it. What's your take on that, Justin? Because I know you're shy.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you guys, I'm in therapy. Have you guys ever seen that movie, The Boiler Room? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So Salesforce, Salesforce and HubSpot people and, and, their, um, and, and their followers talk about this BDR or SDR, I think is the other one. They yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. this idea as if it's new, as if they thought it up and it's bullcrap if you watch the boiler room from the seventies or whenever that was, what you see is exactly that concept. You've got a bunch of 22 year old nincompoops making large volumes of calls. Uh, and when they get interested individuals on the line, they pass them across to closers. who that's exactly the concept. And it's what it's, it's a perfect example of what Deming called sub optimization. It's where you optimize one part of a process and sub optimize the performance of the process as a whole. So If you're trying to improve sales and you're trying to solve for salesperson efficiency, then BDRs make a lot of sense. But if you're trying to solve for how much money you cart off to the bank, uh, BDRs or SDRs make no sense at all. Because their existence, particularly in, in environments where you're selling more complex deals to discerning individuals... Is premised upon the idea that that at the beginning of a sales conversation, what we're trying to do is qualify the prospect to determine whether or not they're worthy to be handed off to an intelligent human. And of course, the customers who you most want to sell to are those that are going to be least tolerant of having some 22-year-old nincompoop trying to qualify them. So it makes no sense to create this artificial distinction between selling and qualification, because ultimately the prospect to whom you're talking from their perspective, everything is selling. And if they're talking to a 22 year old idiot, then it's really bad selling and they're not going to tolerate it. So if you want to sell expensive stuff to to half intelligent people, you need to have your best salespeople having the initial conversation. If you want to improve the efficiency of your best salespeople, don't take away the initial conversation, take away all the other crap they shouldn't be doing and put them in a situation where they do nothing other than selling conversations, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. And, and in most organizations, they will have capacity coming out of their ears. You don't need SDRs. And is that, is that dependent on
3: the size of the, of the ideal customer profile? You know, if I, if I'm selling or, or the size of the thing that I'm selling. So if it's, if it's enterprise or large dollar amount, or do you think differently about it if it's, you know, uh, I do, I do. Small. If
0: you're small, if you're selling something that's large enough and significant enough that it makes sense to have salespeople, you shouldn't have SDRs. If you're selling something that's small enough that, that there's an argument for SDRs, then guess what? There's no argument for the salespeople. You should shut the whole damn thing down and give them money back to your customers in the form of everyday lower prices. With what Go you
2: ahead, on the, the whole SDR. You should have sales reps do it and strip out all the pieces that a sales rep is doing besides selling. Uh, My question on that is how, because I feel like a lot of these seasoned reps, what happens what they do, they tend to migrate into is they've run into an issue with their solution engineer or their sales engineer or their customer service with one of their clients. And now they got involved to save it. And now they apply that same The board. So you can't solve this problem solidified.
0: at the rep level. You have to solve this problem at the organizational level. So when we go in and work in an organization, if let's say we work for, with a company for a year, which is common. The, the smallest volume of work is with the sales team. Most of the work, like nine months out of 12 months, will be spent working with customer service, rebuilding the customer service team, rebuilding the design engineering team, uh, rebuilding procurement, so that salespeople are in a position where they can focus exclusively on selling conversations. You can't go into a typical organization and say and, and, and front up to the sales team and say, hey, there's a new modus operandi moving forward. The consequences would be catastrophic. The rest of the organization has been, desi- has been implicitly designed around the assumption that salespeople have their fingers in everything. And as a consequence, these other functions are not capable of functioning without the involvement of salespeople.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a problem that almost every organization has. Right, yep. as, because as they start small, they they've got their hands in every single facet of the company. Because there are twelve people, it's not scalable. When you start growing more than that, though, some of those guys that were there at the beginning are your best sales reps because they're the most knowledgeable. But their propensity, they're 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 typically wanting to be involved in everything. Or
0: yeah, but but what you need to recognize is there's a point in time where they cease to be sales reps because what happens if you look at the evolution right. of a small firm? somebody will start out picking up the phone and selling in a traditional sense, you know, hustling for business. Mm -hmm. And then that person will end up with a bunch of accounts. And then that person becomes focused on looking after the revenue that those accounts produce So at some point in time, they transition silently without anyone noticing from being a salesperson into being a very expensive customer services rep, okay? And salespeople think it's honorable to walk around saying, well, I own all these accounts. And it's BS. All it means is you're an overpaid mobile customer service rep. If you took sales seriously, you wouldn't own any accounts. You would insist that you you only went to work for organizations that were mature enough to build operational capability that made your ownership of accounts unnecessary. That way, you could focus on selling.
2: Completely aligned here. That's exactly what I, I say on my own a lot of times. They're overpaid account reps or account managers,
0: or customer service reps. Customer service reps. Yeah, I had I had some of the best
2: reps come to me. Uh, you know, at uh, previous company, say, I'm sitting with my accounts and they have, they are asking me 25 questions uh, every single month of things we can answer, and I'm like, great, answer the two that we can. not stop focusing on the 23 that we can't. We can, we can sell these two. We can solve these two problems. Don't focus on everything else. And instead they'd spend all this time trying to focus on the other 23 and it would just drive me nuts.
1: Yeah. Well, who should own the sales reps calendar? Uh,
0: uh, We used to say, Oh, well, sales reps should be field-based and give their calendar to someone else to manage for them. But we haven't been advocating that now for, I don't know, 15 years. And, And everyone thought we were idiots and then COVID came along and this has been our busiest year in history. And it's because everyone realized that even though we are idiots, generally speaking, we happen to be correct on this point. Your sales team should be inside. They shouldn't be in the field.
2: Yeah. It's a waste of time.
0: Now it's true that there are activities that need to be performed as part of the pursuit of a sale in the field, but turns out that those activities for the most part shouldn't be performed by salespeople. So if you think about the, Activities that typically need to be genuinely need to be performed face to face. It's detailed requirement discovery and demonstrations. Salespeople shouldn't be doing either of those things. Engineers should be doing those things.
3: It is pretty amazing how when you know when we were when we were selling through the pandemic at Outmatch, how how many sales that we would have said, "Oh, you got to go see those people." "Oh, you got to get in the field to see those people." Actually, closed without being face to face. It was eye-opening for us as to how much money got spent in that let me go see somebody effort that frankly then got repurposed either to to nothing we saved it or 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 we were able to invest in education of our reps to say well instead of thinking that you're missing out on not being there in person here are all the opportunities that you have in front of you
0: that was Yeah, well, I mean, la- lazy, lazy salespeople think that in order to sell, they have to go and develop a personal relationship, but that's yeah. bullcrap. In order to sell, you have to give someone a compelling commercial proposition and you have to communicate it effectively. And if you have to go and sit face-to-face with them in order to communicate a compelling proposition, then you're obviously a, sh- a shitty communicator and you shouldn't be on the sales team in the first place. Do you have strong
3: feelings about this, Justin, or do you want to restate that in a little stronger <laughs> language at all? Um,
0: I. <laughs> No, I think, cha- I think I think I think <laughs> I think I nailed it on the first go. <laughs> One of the chapters, death of field sales, man. You you had that down before COVID. I yep. mean. So I have an advantage over a lot of folks, particularly in Silicon Valley, because when I started Ballistics years ago, our initial a lot of our initial clients were mining and heavy industrial. So we worked with. Odotech out of Helsinki, which, which was a multi-billion dollar, or well, still is, I'm sure, multi-billion dollar mining company. We worked with Russell Mineral Equipment, Russell Mineral Equipment in Toowoomba, Australia, which was, a, I don't know, a hundred plus million dollar manufacturer of what were essentially these robotic mining machines and a n- number of other similar cases. And what we discovered from the get-go is if you're selling really expensive pieces of custom custom-engineered kit where the deal value is north of a million dollars, you, your sales team is inside. So that was kind of our, one of our first experiences of sales. If, if we've, We just finished an engagement with Stas in Canada. They sell um, heavy equipment into aluminum smelting uh, op- operations. Th- they're in northern Quebec. They sell all over the world, including the Middle East when they're allowed to. And, and their sales team sits in northern Quebec. The biggest sales challenge they have is finding people in Quebec who speak good English. Because it turns out the rest of the world speaks English when it comes to making major industrial purchases, and there's no reason to be face to face—not for a salesperson. You may want to send engineers to go face to face, but if if you're selling in if you're selling in an industrial environment, million dollar plus transactions, and you send a salesperson to go and visit with a customer, your customer is going to think that you've got rocks in your head.
1: So, Justin, if if somebody's going to hire you to c- come in. Let, let's give you a little plug here. Sell, sell your services. What would it look like? We, they call you up and you come in, you, you evaluate the situation. What, what do you do? I know what it was for me the couple of times we brought you in. What, it, what, what do you do currently?
0: Well, we start with a, with a workshop with the senior executive team. And the, the, the question we ask in the workshop is if we were to start with a clean sheet of paper and redesign the organization from scratch so that it would grow faster what would it look like? Notice I'm saying the organization, not the sales function. So if we were to re-engineer the organization for aggressive growth and and we had the opportunity to start with a clean sheet of paper, how exactly would we engineer it? And we worked through a process of mapping out the structure of the organization. And then at the end of that workshop, we asked the question, well, do we want to build this or do we want to just put it in the bottom drawer as evidence of an interesting intellectual discussion we had years ago?
1: Now, the people that hire you on, aren't they in dire straits or I would say <laughs> dire straits, <laughs> but I no. mean, it's like what I've seen is people think they know it all. Cause anytime you try to bring in a consultant, it's like, well, why don't we have the knowledge here to be able to do this? That's the first obstacle. If we knew. Well, know, we knowing to how to do, is
0: knowing how is the easy part. Yeah. yeah, It's like, you know, knowing when I just bought it. Well, no, it's how I think I just bought uh, Well, Sorry, it's not just knowing how, or it's it's having the experience of doing it. I I just bought a HVLP spray setups. So I'm a bit of a woodworker on the side, and it, conceptually, s- spraying paint is extremely simple, but. If you want to get a feel for how complex it is, you know, go, go and buy an HVLP spray setup and have a crack at respraying your car and see what the end result looks like. So the reason why folks hire us is not because they don't understand what the end state looks like. We've already run a workshop for them and showed them what the end state looks like. It's not even that it's theoretically impossible for them, them to make the transition. It's not all of our clients are smart enough to make the transition themselves. It's just that They understand that if they try to do it themselves, they have to fumble through. It's going to take a long time. And it's going to be a distraction from a lot of other important stuff. Whereas if they have us come and do it, we have a team of people who run these transitions time after time in three different continents. And and we can do it quickly. And you're going to get a more professional result on the first attempt.
1: Why are some organizations more hesitant than others to... Bring a consultant like yourself, and do you even call yourself a consultant? I mean, because that's all. I try not
0: things. to. I try not yeah. to. I, I think of. I like to think of our organization as a building company. We go into yeah. organizations and we build stuff. We go in, we build stuff, we leave, and I think that's a much healthier model. But unfortunately, I have to call ourselves a consulting firm because there's no word, you know, or for companies that go into organizations, build infrastructure, and leave again. I get. I mean, I guess they are called. That's what probably Deloitte's and Accenture do. And and they tend to be called consulting firms.
1: At at a few companies, I've seen them be very resistant or they're insecure, I think is the right word of bringing somebody like you in because they're worried that they will be exposed, that they don't know what they're doing. Why do, have you seen that or picked up that vibe anywhere? Why would that be?
2: Carney, why is that happening? I think it's exactly that. I think, um, You know, the the biggest thing out there is benchmarking, right? Inside your own company, you think you know, but you're scared of what really is out there. When I benchmark myself against other companies like me, am I really doing well? Because right now I'm touting myself and I'm patting myself on the back and I'm selling upstream to everyone of how great we're doing. But once you get the benchmarking in there, that's when you realize you might be the tallest midget. I think the same thing happens with your organizational structure and uh, performance, and the fact that I might think SDRs and BDRs are a great example, but when I bring somebody else in, they might say, "You just wasted, you know, eight hundred thousand dollars on building up this yep. SDR function, and it's got to go away." And and the the uh, the, the senior leadership executive is going to take the fall for that, and is going to take a, a, a slap on the the wrist if it's, or maybe get loses.
0: Yeah, we don't, we don't have much success working for companies where the founder is not in charge. So a, a, a typical or maybe an ideal client for us is, a, is in the sort of 100 to $300 million range with the founder still either in charge or, or, or sitting in the background uh, uh, paying careful, but still paying careful attention to what's going on we try and avoid, you know, large corporations that have salaried CEOs because it's very difficult to drive change into those organizations for the reasons that you suggest. I think I should point out that most organizations do not work with us. Only a very tiny percentage of companies work with us. And almost without exception, it's where the CEOs read the book and and they've said, fuck it. The the existing sales function is clearly flawed. It's clearly not scalable. You know, we want to go from a hundred million to one hundred and fifty or two hundred and fifty million, and our current sales function is not going to take us there. And I've read the book, and the book clearly makes sense. We're going to do this, and that. And that's a starting point for most of our engagements. It's yeah. it's never a committee.
3: Well, you know, the other thing because I I like that idea a lot, where you just say, okay, well. I think something's broken here. Let's let's go fix it. I mean I I tell people a lot too in in terms of bringing someone in from the outside to help or at least the way you benchmark and start is go get the key metrics, the key learnings, the insights that you need to take that next step. And I'll tell you right now you're not going to like what you find. Yeah. So it isn't a to to me and I and this is probably an enlightened leadership team that could do this which is I got all the information I need. I don't like what I found. Rather than sit there and say, so-and-so is not doing their job. or it, It's a company issue. It's a leadership team problem to solve. And so then you say, well, I don't like the answer that I got. So how do I organize my business or the structure or whatever the, whatever the problem you're trying to solve is in order to, to get the results that I want and the things that make me happy and, so, uh, and, and then make the business grow? So, you know, I, I think in terms of like consultants and stuff, the challenge becomes when, when leadership teams are not willing to say, yeah, we asked them to solve the problem. But then when we found out the answer, we didn't like it. So we got rid of every. Like you have to power through that. I'm not going to like it. I know that. So let's benchmark and go rather than, you know, benchmark and like just get pissed and stick our head in the sand.
0: I, I think that... um when an organization gets large, above a certain size, the, the, the key to success is maintaining the status quo, business as usual. And there's value in that. If, 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 if it's a $2 billion business, you don't need every smart ass with a new idea to be given free reign to mess with a proven business model. So my approach would be to try and avoid those type of, types of businesses. If they're in dire straits, and they hire in a, you know, a transformational leader, then sure, we're interested. If they get bought by private equity, th- th- then, then we're interested because, of course, if they get bought by private equity, the CEO is not actually in charge. There's, there's someone else in the background mm-hmm. who's an economic decision maker. So, yeah, we'll, we, we definitely will get involved then. But my solution to convincing large companies to change is it's not my job. Someone else can yeah. try and do that. It's a full zero yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So,
2: would you say you mainly work then with, uh, with uh, either smaller, medium-sized companies or PE-owned
0: companies? Yeah, so so medium to large, privately owned or PE-owned um, companies, mostly industrial. I'm a big fan of software. Um, I've been sort of, I've kept a close eye on what's happened in software and we've had some large software clients. In fact, the world's largest software company on a price earnings basis has been a client of ours on and off for the last 10 years, a company out of Australia, no one's ever heard of, but we do most of our work with industrial clients because they're just easier to work with. And, and you guys will hate me for saying this, but they tend to have more mature management than technology companies.
3: Oh, sure. I mean, that, that, that's one of the challenges of of a technology company, like to, to get one started, and then to get one to sustain and grow, you have to bring in some experience somewhere along the line. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, it's like.
0: You got you know, the, the problem, with, the problem with startups. If you is you have sometimes hyper-intelligent people with no common sense, yeah. or you have idiots who are hyper, who, who think they're hyper-intelligent and who still have no common sense. Um, Cause of a lack of experience in, 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 in heavy industry, we're working with, Folks who are intelligent, who are humble, intelligent with decades of experience. Uh, And oftentimes uh, with with organizations that have really, really good fundamentals. They have what what Silicon Valley would call product market fit. And it's much, much easier for us to drive growth for an organization like that than it is a a startup with questionable product market fit and a bunch of cocky recent college grads running amok. Mm
3: you know I, i think that gets to strategy too like what is the strategy so if i'm a if i'm a heavy i mean i guess it doesn't matter the the industry if i have a strategy to build something that serves my customer base and that's the most important thing to me it's different than a strategy which is i'm going to grow this to as much possible revenue as i can in order to transact right so there are two different strategies and i think if you've got a strategy that's let me just grow this as fast as i can so i can sell it for as much money i am not sure you'd get anywhere with a client like that with what you do if you have a, a, a customer that has a strategy that's how do i how do i maximize the value for my customer and that's how i'll grow you know then then uh, that's- I, I
0: i don't i don't necessarily have a problem with an organization that wants to grow aggressively and sell a shit ton of stuff. I, I respect that. I'm a capitalist. Um, Yeah. But that, um,
3: that may not be the actual, um, if the actual point of the business is just to, I guess what I'm saying is to apply your framework to a a business whose job is, whose point is just, I'm going to grow it as big as I can and then sell it. Yeah. I think that, that that I think that problem
0: self-corrects. I think it's very difficult unless you're selling religion or something, it's very difficult to scale past, you know, seed capital, mm-hmm. if 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 you don't have a proposition that has some substance behind it, you can point to WeWork, but I think I think that that's a, There are obviously some. Uh, I, I would say that's an outlier. Um,
2: yeah,
0: or cult- the market has lots. Generally speaking, the market has lots of options, and if you have a shitty product, they're not going to buy it. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think honestly, what you said there at the beginning was the people that are are college grad inexperienced that might not have a product market fit probably need your services more than ever because uh, and they're probably the ones that you can work with because their product market fit you'll know if it's a product market fit if you have the sales organization stream. Oh,
0: absolutely, and, and that's a great point. I mean, yeah. one of the problems with the traditional approach to the design of the sales function is it insulates decision-makers from the field and it, and it reduces or it increases the, the, the innovation cycle time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we go into an organization and build an inside sales team, we will say to marketing, look, it's your job to, put, to replenish salespeople's opportunity cues on a daily basis. Now, we know that salespeople are going to consume opportunities at the rate of about 10 a day. So if we have an inside sales team with 10 people in it, we need 100 ops a day. Now, in order to generate 100 ops a day, you can't do that with inbound in most cases. So, so most of those ops need to be outbound. And in order for outbound to work, you need to come up with compelling propositions. And in order to come up with compelling propositions, you need to identify market segments that have peculiar requirements that aren't well served by larger competitors. Now, that whole offer formulation piece can't be done by sales or marketing because you don't have folks in those divisions with a mandate that's broad enough to allow them to do that. So, it, so the responsibility for offer formulation is forced to shift to the senior executive team. So now we have a situation where we have a group of senior executives sitting around a boardroom table. And we say to those guys, hey, you guys and gals are responsible for coming up with the propositions that are going to breathe life into the sales function. And the, the success of the sales function is primarily, provided you've done a reasonable job of building the plumbing, the, the success of the sales function is primarily a function of how good a job those senior executives do of, of coming up with compelling propositions. Yeah. And the problem with the traditional approach to sales allows, allows senior management teams to, to dodge that responsibility. Somebody can come up with what seemed like a good idea and pass off responsibility for execution to a sales team. And it can be years before the chickens come home to roost. Whereas with our model, on a monthly basis, we're sitting down and reviewing the results that we got from the last proposition, and we're saying to the senior team, well, we all thought the marketplace was going to take to that one, but they hated it. it. sucked. We need a more compelling proposition.
1: Pay at risk, Justin. Anytime I have ever brought up that we should pay salespeople a flat salary, they say, Pete, you're, you're crazy. It, am I crazy, or have you changed your tune, Justin.
0: Well, like like I said, we started off working with large industrial companies and in those environments, salespeople are hardly ever paid at risk. They're paid salaries and they're paid good salaries. Um, I think that it depends. It depends how you view your sales function. If you view your salespeople as autonomous or semi-autonomous agents, kind of like, I don't know if you saw that movie, The Founder. It featured Ray Kroc driving around in his Jalopy, trying to sell yeah. mix master machines out of, out of his trunk. Yeah, I love if that that's, Yeah. If that's your sales model, if you employ a whole bunch of folks who are essentially manufacturers reps, then I have nothing wrong with at-risk pay because ultimately those people don't really work for you. They're independent agents.
1: Contractors.
0: But yeah, they're contractors. It's no different from if you were a Dell computer and you decided to sell some of your machines through Best Buy obviously Best Buy is gonna be compensated on a piece rate. It makes obvious sense. But if, if you actually want your sales function to consist of a bunch of, of, of team members who actually play together as a team, and in many cases, it's essential that you do that because if you're selling something complex, you need tight integration between your salespeople and your design engineering team and you know customer success or whatever. Um, so if you're in a position where you want your salespeople to be part of a team, then it should be relatively uncontroversial for someone to suggest that maybe you should actually pay them like their team members. And if you don't, you end up with a whole bunch of ugly artifacts that you have to pay people in your organization to fix. From the book,
1: you say that you should pay them to the level where compensation is no longer an issue. Is that still true?
0: Well, yes, but I mean... What's sad about this conversation is that it's interesting. It shouldn't be interesting. Imagine if we substituted salespeople for software engineers. Imagine if the radical idea that we were discussing or that we were proposing, somebody was tentatively proposing, is that we pay software engineers at a level that causes them to stop talking about their pay packet and start talking about how to build the algorithms that are required to solve difficult engineering problems. Everyone just checked out of that conversation because it was so freaking boring and, and, and self-evident. Why would sales be any different? I mean, people want to ask me, why, sh- what, 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 why would you get rid of peace rate pay and replace it with salary? And, and my view is, no, hang on. The onus is on you. You're the one trying to do something that is, the, you're the one who's trying to do something unusual,
1: so, Carney, could you do that at your uh, at a
2: company? Could you pay everybody a salary? How would that
1: work?
0: I don't think we can, uh,
2: just because of the uh, you know part of it, part of you get hamstrung with the expense model that you have, right? So, if you pay everyone a salary, um, and you're expecting only to pay out you know you know forty percent commissions, then all of a sudden your P and L changes. And so that's another problem that often happens, I think, in that situation. But I do think it all depends. I mean, if they're hunters, if they're purely hunters, you might want to incentivize, you know, more. If they're account managers, you should pay. Them. If
0: they're purely hunters, they don't need to be incentivized because they're hunters, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's their whole thing. I play job.
0: tennis and there's salespeople who come and play in the evenings after work. Turns out they're competitive on the tennis court and, and they're not being incentivized with money. You know why? Because they're competitive.
2: I get it. I just,
0: I think, I think the problem is you got to get it early
2: because otherwise when you start getting in multiples and stuff like that, and, and your, your EBITDA and your cash EBITDA and all of those earnings.
0: Well, yeah, it depends on what, we- it depends how you look at them. If you look at them on a, on a month to month basis, then maybe the numbers will go backwards. But if you look at them on a rolling 12 month basis, then the traditional model's terrible, terrible from an EBITDA perspective. Yeah. I mean, it may well be that you view piece rate pay as a hedge against non-performance, but I've got a question for you, James. So let's say yeah. you employ 10 salespeople yep. and all of them appear to be capable because you're not an idiot. You wouldn't have employed the, employed the ones that look like deadbeats. Mm-hmm. Um, and every week you check in on them and see how they're going. And all of them have rapidly growing pipelines. How long does it take for you to to, to discover or, or to determine which of those three or four people you just employed are in fact deadbeats and need to be ejected from the organization? Oh, it
2: takes easily uh, over a year probably.
0: Yeah, it takes a year. So, it, it, so piece rate pay is only objective for the organization is if you do the reckoning on the first month. If you do the reckoning over the course of a year, it's terrible for the performance of organizations. Uh-huh. I mean, if we build a sales team and salespeople do nothing other than selling conversations. And they have 15 to 20 selling, well, they have 10 to 15 selling conversations a day. And they process opportunities at rate of 10 a day. And they sit in a room with a bunch of other salespeople who are doing exactly the same thing. It's meaning we can benchmark them with one another. We can tell a good salesperson from a deadbeat in within weeks. And we eject them from the team within a month. Now we might've paid them 150K a year because that's the market value with, that's the market value of someone that has a set of capabilities that we need, but we pay them 150K a year for a month.
2: Here's an interesting twist to that. In North America, that, that works, but in other countries with their employment laws and things of that nature, it's not as clean cut as you're, you're saying, right?
0: Why but, do you think I moved here? <laughs> because we're
2: global right (laughs) getting getting uh, exiting somebody from germany denmark spain switzerland is not an easy well
0: there are ways i come from australia where we have a lot of socialist you know employment law there there are ways around it um and smart aussie companies have figured out ways around it And, and by the way we have built US-based sales teams for a lot of our, I mean, a common trick for us with Aussie companies, particularly tech companies is to say, look, you can have your customer service team in Sydney, but if you want to sell internationally, uh, we're going to build your sales team on on the West coast of, uh, of the States here, because it's a lot easier to sell internationally from the US than it is to sell internationally from Australia.
2: Wow didn't think of that but that's a good point the, the, well, the, a the
0: problem the problem with the the problem with the socialist countries isn't just the employment law the the leadership teams is a problem it's not just that the government's socialist it's that the, it's that the leadership teams are socialist too so you can't just blame the uh, you can't just blame the um, the, the the environment I'm not, i mean some of these companies aren't that keen on making money
2: yeah that that is true and It's a head scratcher most of the time when I'm looking at performance of other countries and why we're even involved in certain countries. Not the current company I'm at, but the company I was before. I would scratch my head going, "Why are we even there?"
0: Exactly. Um, Exactly.
2: Why do we have thoughts?
1: Thoughts on CRMs, Justin? CRM implementations. Any thoughts?
0: Well, organizations waste stupid, stupid amounts of money. I think that ideally, the CRM in, in a perfect world, I would say the CRM should be used for one purpose only. And that is the pursuit of new business, so it should be used by the sales team exclusively, and the sales team exclusively should be involved in one thing, and that's pursuing new business. that means winning new accounts and selling new categories of business to existing accounts. Everything other than that should not be done in CRM, it should be done in ERP uh, processing you know processing orders, generating quotes, you, you know engineering and configuring solutions. Uh, uh, everything else should be done in ERP. It makes no sense to move all, all that operational stuff into a different piece of technology. Now, if you keep, if you if you reserve CRM for simply the pursuit of new business, you you don't need tight integration between CRM and ERP. You only need a one-way integration of the address book. That's all you need. Um, and you don't need lots of customization. So you can go and buy Salesforce uh, the way it comes or any uh, dynamics or... Sugar or any enterprise class CRM, and you can avoid the consulting firm that wants to sell you services and you can simply use it the way it comes out of the box. All you need is to figure out how to do a one way replication of address book data from ERP into CRm so you know we can we can get an organization up and running with with crm in a week with no professional services fees but of course there's a huge incentive for uh enterprise uh, technology companies to overcomplicate things they want to transfer a whole bunch of stuff that should be done in erp into crm so that they can write complex integrations between the two and so that they can spend a fortune trying to replicate the complex data model from erp into crm but it it And of course, we're giving, we meaning the business community, giving them license to doing, to do that as a consequence of our complete absence of division of labor. If we recognize that salespeople have nothing to do with revenue, they contribute nothing to revenue. Revenue should be the responsibility of operations. Salespeople's contribution is winning new annuities, winning new business. Now, if if we, if organizations recognize that and structured their businesses accordingly, there would be significantly less less expenditure on CRM.
2: I think it's interesting. In one of your, your talks, you were talking about operations versus sales. And, and that sort of hits on what you're saying here. Pricing is operations. You know, product issues should be operations. You know, I feel like sales jumps in in all of these different avenues and it bogs them down from selling.
0: Um, yeah, well, the two the two pertinent facts here is that for most organizations... 70 to 90% of their revenue in any given reporting period comes from existing customers repurchasing. Now, the second piece of information is if you look at why customers leave, in other words, stop purchasing, the three most common reasons in order are poor operational performance. In other words, you don't deliver your stuff on time. Number two, poor pricing, you're too bloody expensive. And number three is product problems. So the, uh, either the performance of the product or they're not happy with the range of uh, products at the organization stocks. They're the, th- they're the top three most common reasons why customers leave and all of those things are operational responsibility. Salespeople have nothing to do with any of those things. So if most of your revenue comes from existing customers repurchasing, and if what causes existing customers to continue repurchasing are operational factors, then why the hell do we think that salespeople should be responsible for revenue in the first place?
2: Yeah.
3: I I mean, it's a great point to say, like, if my, if, if I'm a customer of a company and my rep leaves um, almost never is that is, is the customer leaving the company just because the rep left or changed, right. They, they still use it. Yep. I mean, I've had 15 reps at Salesforce still using Salesforce, you know, so that's obviously not the issue.
2: Do you feel like sometimes reps want to, like, even if you communicate that out, I still feel the propensity for reps to be involved so much in it. And I uh, so much involved in the implementation and just the ongoing support of uh, an account.
0: One, I so think if it was, if it was your I business, trust, James, if it was your okay. business, James, why would you allow that?
2: Uh, it's not my business. That's what I'm saying. No. I'm observing similar to what you're dealing with. I have the same mindset. I'm just sort of putting this out there. I feel like reps constantly are involved in it. And I their underlying reasons are, one, they just don't know what to do with themselves. And two, I feel like in certain cases, uh, they may have over, oversold.
0: I, I, I think I, I would be kinder to reps. I would say, in many cases, they're involved in on- onboarding new clients and solving clients' problems because they have to be. It's because the the organization has been implicitly designed based upon an assumption that salespeople will be involved. Now, what needs to happen is the leadership team needs to say, "Okay, we need to redesign operations so that not only is there no involvement for salespeople, no reason for salespeople to be involved in operational tasks, but... So that two more conditions exist. There are two more critical conditions. The first is that the operations team has to be able to perform those tasks that previously salespeople were performing at a higher quality, significantly faster, at a significantly faster velocity. And the the second condition is we need to engineer the organization so it becomes impossible for salespeople to get involved in operational tasks.
2: Isn't there another one though? It's also, you got to make sure what the salespeople sold we can deliver on. So there needs to be a, a, a pretty, cause sales, sometimes, you know, they have, they, especially when you have purely hunters, they're going to sell at all costs, especially when they can just. Uh, yeah.
0: So in a, in an off. engineered order environment, uh, I mean, that tends to happen in an engineered order environment where there's some ambiguity and there's wriggle room for salespeople, but in an engineered order environment, we would stipulate that a representative of operations must be the one res- who, who's responsible for detailed requirement discovery, and they must have ultimate responsibility for the design of the solution. We would never give that responsibility to salespeople. The reason you employ so if the, the question I always ask audiences is what do you think salespeople's superpower is? And the answer that people give me instinctively, if they, if they don't think about it is they say, well, building relationships. But then when people think about it, they realize that super, salespeople's superpower is persuasion. If you've got someone whose superpower is persuasion, why the hell would you put them, would you make them responsible for the design of a solution that your engineering and production departments have to execute? I mean, that's absolutely the wrong attribute that you would want in a person responsible for solution design.
3: So how does it happen that way? How does How do companies... Like, you know, I think, well, I don't know, maybe you don't start out with the purest of motives, but how how does it get that way? How are the companies that work with you believe enough to say, yeah, we're going to like fundamentally change what everybody thinks?
0: So it got that way because we evolved from... The Ray Kroc model, the founder model—you know, the the the, the uh, arm's length rep driving around with a bunch of inventory in the trunk, flogging it in the boondocks. That's that's what that's what business. That's what business evolved from. That's what sales evolved from. And business transitioned over time from you, you know make to stock, uh, which means the rep can load up the trunk of his car with stuff to sell, to make to order which means that um, the stuff that the rep selling hasn't actually been made yet. So the rep has more degrees of freedom to uh, engineer to order where the stuff that the rep is selling hasn't even been designed yet. And nobody thought to question whether or not the salesperson should be retaining responsibility for all the promises they're making. So if if you're selling a mixed master machine, it doesn't make sense. And you're the salesperson. It doesn't make sense to argue to the customer that this machine can do something that it can't because it's pretty clear to the customer what the capabilities of the machine are. You know, you only have so many degrees of freedom, but if, if you now keep the same model, if you have a Ray Kroc style individual in his jalopy, um, pitching a customer on a custom solution that hasn't yet been engineered, then th- 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 there are no checks on what they can promise. Now, the second part of the question is how do we convince organizations to make the change? We don't convince organizations to make the change. We convince CEOs to make the change.
3: We well, so how do, you, how do you do that? I mean, that, I, I guess that's the-
0: By having them listen question. to a conversation like this. You know, you get two react. If, if you have a senior executive, a particular CEO, particularly a founder CEO, listen to a conversation like this, you'll get two, one or two reactions. One reaction is, fuck me, this is painful. I've got a headache. Get, get mm-hmm. me out of here. Get me a stiff drink. <laughs> the other reaction is... That's what Pete's you. face looks like right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. The, other rea- the other reaction is, fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. This is obviously how reality is. L- get, get the troops together. Put them in a boardroom. Mm-hmm. I just had an insight. We need to re-engineer our organization before our competitors figure this shit out. We sell to people who think like that. We don't sell to anyone else.
1: Amen. Amen. Guys, we're at time. Anybody got anything yeah. left in the tank? Yeah. Oh, God. Is really great. I love this. I love this man. Justin, <laughs> I love this man. Justin, you, what's Pete. the best What's the best way uh, uh, a, a CEO that's currently
0: still a CEO, how do they get a hold of
1: uh, you and your services?
0: Well, I'm easy to find online. If you search, if you Google Justin Rothmarsh, I have a blog at Ballistics. Sorry, I have a website at ballistics.com, Ballistics with an X. Uh, I have a blog at salesprocessengineering.net. Um, you, you can find me at justinroffmarsh.com or if you just t- type Justin Rothmarsh into Twitter or you know I'm all over the place, easy to find. Well, you, well, you are totally Sassholes
1: approved. Yeah. For your yeah. services, your books, uh, used you twice, cases and cases of books, uh, go get this guy.
0: Excellent. People have been calling me something that sounded like that for a long time. I thought they were saying something different, but I realize now they've been saying sasshole all along. Right. Yeah.
2: Same with us. Good for for you. Uh,
0: I feel better about the human race now already.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right, thank you, everybody, for listening to the assholes on behalf of Jason, Jamie, and myself, Pete. We thank you for listening and ask you to please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Cue the non copyrighted music. <laughs> Justin, thank you, thank, thank you, you a thank lot. You. Yeah, that oh was my great. God, you love. We are going to share the shit out of this, love man. It. So, what's
3: up? How you doing? Good. Excellent.
1: Yeah, big shoe, really big shoe.
3: Big shoe today. It's good.
1: Was talking Justin earlier. He's in the background. Kevin is hot. Pee, getting ready. He'll, he'll, he'll pop on. Ah. We, we haven't contracted in two minutes, so we're gonna, we're gonna leave him Yes, <laughs>
3: that's good. I mean, you gotta. Have... Boundaries. you gotta have boundaries. That's right. <laughs> so how, how, how many podcasts is? you got going, big guy? Uh I got about four.
1: You, nice. know, I'm trying to, you know. Rogan's taking a little heat, so Spotify needs a little help. I'm gonna yeah. try to help him with his missed episodes. Oh here's Carney. Okay, oh great. He made it.
0: Yeah, Carney.
1: Yeah. And- on. There he is. Nice to have you, man. Thanks for Justin. having us. Hey. Okay. Hey, Justin. Hey, we... hey, how you doing? All right. That, the the glass is there. That's Jason Ferrara. We worked uh, back in the day together. He's a marketing guru, just hey, so you hey, know. Justin.
3: Hello. Uh, guru is... Uh... A I it's was a talking talk to somebody the other day who believes the guru is a, a dirty word. So, uh, oh really? Let's see.
0: Yeah. No, every word, every, every word, word. is every word is dirty when you use it in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: like that. I'm to write that down. <laughs>
0: so so Jason's on the marketing
1: side, and then we have uh, the guy with the hair there. That's uh, that's a J, uh, Jamie harney there he's a financial savant is savant <laughs> I a better
2: word sure. oh. that's what you want to call me i've run and a that... lot i've worn a ton of different hats from product to finance to rev you know but
0: well with that and hair you have to, have to wear quite a few hats speaking of hair i wanted to congratulate you on the beard I, I i i'm impressed Pete. i meant to say before
1: Oh, you're talking about the uh the Burt Reynolds mustache?
0: Stash? Yeah, that, what was that cop show um uh Something Street Something Blues? uh Hill Street Blues. <laughs> no, 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 the one about the New York cops NY, NYPD Blues. Oh, I, yeah. Oh. Reminds me. Of... No, I think Hell
2: Street Blues is a better example. <laughs> it is a uh it is a um a beard from the 70s. Pete is also known to stand
3: in front of a group of people and say, be careful out there. So, Hill Street Blues <laughs> is, his, is his jam. Okay. This is a weak, weak attempt to
1: uh, besmirch me. Try harder, please. <laughs> so, uh... so, we we have uh, Justin on, and how many books did I hand out? I know I gave both of you guys, I gave you a machine book, didn't I, back in the day? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I bought crates of them and handed them out, trying to spread the word, Just and here we are. Yeah,
0: they were a popular gift. They're like Sade records in the 80s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, no, I never used them when I was...
2: I never had that book playing when I was in college and with a romantic interest. Sorry. <laughs> Yikes. You have romantic
1: interest? <laughs> I was going to say. Not really. <laughs> I didn't think that was happening in Milwaukee.
0: <laughs>
1: in, in Milwaukee, how much did it cost? <laughs> it's just one night done, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I the only... Although the dorms in Milwaukee, you do pay by the hour.
2: Just so you know, they, they rarely get a chance to make fun of me. So, <laughs> the, fucking, uh, the, the, the romance same. is
0: cheap, it's the recovery that's expensive <laughs> Yes
2: <laughs>
0: uh, uh, Alright,
1: okay, now we got that out of the way <laughs> oh, this asshole's that, that's The power of editing We'll make that sound really even better Okay, welcome to the set uh, Jamie, do you want to do the opening or should I do the opening? I, I didn't... You can do the opening again now. Are you sure? Okay. You yeah, I've been swamped. I haven't been All right, all right. We'll we'll let, edit this out in post uh, as long as along with everything else. The the welcome whole to opening.
0: Uh, and listen to bits throughout it, but the editing was good.
1: All right, yeah. I'll take that. I'll take that.
0: It's raw. That. It's
1: raw. Raw. We are raw. We are the. Yeah, we're just goals. trying to get out there and do
2: that.
3: <laughs> Hope you want to be a raw asshole. That doesn't
1: sound.
3: <laughs>
1: that does sound <laughs> yeah, comfortable. Buy, you should K K Y.
0: You oh, should put please. it in your descriptor. Uh, <laughs> Justin, thank asshole. you, guys.
1: We don't want to take. <laughs> you're on the clock, man. Go make <laughs> that you. money. All right all, right, over all. all right. all the best. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. Bye. Bye.